My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm the lead pastor of Citizens Church. I'm actually recording this a few weeks after it was first delivered because it failed to get recorded, but in the hopes of having a complete series uh, online, I decided to re-record it. So happy for you to be listening. Thanks for tuning in. We are a month into our very quick journey through the biblical story of money. Uh, we've considered creation, fall, promise, the law, and today we'll be hanging out in the wisdom literature, mostly the Proverbs. But I want to open with the conclusion to the book of Job. So Job chapter 42, verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the wisdom available to us in your word. Uh, we ask that you would make us into people of wisdom, particularly around the way that we spend and use our wealth and possessions. Uh, we want to honor you in everything we do, and a lot of what we do is financial. And so uh, help us to grow uh, today as we listen, but also um, in an ongoing way to be faithful, uh, kingdom-minded spenders of money. We love you and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in the order of the series, we left off uh, in Deuteronomy and considered the economics of the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath is a mind-blowing way to run a country's economic system. Uh, you've got the weekly Sabbath, where we stop work one day out of every seven, the year of release, where all debt is wiped clean every seven years, the year of Jubilee, where property ownership is reset every 50 years. Um, feels very, very anti-capitalist, doesn't it? And so I thought it'd be helpful to start out today by giving capitalism some love. Uh, it's very in vogue to be critical of modern capitalism, especially in San Francisco. But when you consider the average human life before capitalism and after capitalism, it becomes hard to overstate just how much good modern economics has done for humanity. Uh, in preparation for this series, I spent the summer reading about money, a lot of different kinds of reading. And I read this great little book on a philosophy of modern money. And it was just three cap chapters, uh, one on the benefits of capitalism, one on the downsides, and then a chapter on how Christians should live in the tension. And I'd like to read just a little bit from the pro-capitalism chapter. 
So as recently as a couple hundred years ago, life expectancy at birth was only between 30 and 40 years. And prior to the year 1400, it was only between 20 and 30 years. In large part, this was because only every other child prior to the year 1400 and only three or four out of five prior to the year 1800 lived to celebrate their fifth birthday. But of course, they probably did not have much to celebrate with, for as recently as 200 years ago, the vast majority of people in the world went hungry most of the time. In pre-industrial Britain, for example, one harvest in six was a complete failure, and even when there happened to be food, most people were still crippled by a variety of dietary deficiencies, as well as by constant outbreaks of bacterial stomach infections from the consumption of rotten or poorly made foodstuffs. Uh, personal and public hygiene were execrable. Chronic and wasting diseases such as malaria and tuberculosis were endemic. The relatively short lives of our ancestors were often cut even shorter by viral or bacterial infections such as cholera, smallpox, diphtheria, and plague. There were almost no medicines and few effective cures for even the most elementary of medical conditions. In short, it was not that long ago that our ancestors lived amid conditions that we would consider appalling today. The typical human society has provided only a relatively small number of people with a humane existence, while most people lived in the abysmal poverty that has been the normal condition of most people throughout human history. We tend to forget the dominating misery of other times in part by the grace of literature, poetry, romance, and legend, which celebrate those who have lived well and forget those who lived in the silence of poverty. The past is often mythologized and bygone eras are often remembered as golden ages of pastoral simplicity, but in fact, they were not. Most of us would not have survived long enough to become interested in a book like this, and the few of us who might have survived would, in all likelihood, not have enjoyed the leisure time to read it, and we probably would have been unable to read in any case. That is a sobering description of life not too long ago. And so let us pause for a second and count our good fortune to live in the year of our Lord, 2022. As much as we might admire God's vision for ancient Israel, we should all be glad we live now and not then. The power of money has truly improved the world. And so it's no surprise that we're tempted to worship it because it is powerful. If I had to describe in one word the Bible's assessment of money, I would say that it's radioactive. Money has tremendous power, radioactive power. It can power cities. It can heal cancer. But if you don't know how to use it, it will destroy you and everything around you. Maybe all of a sudden, like a nuclear explosion, but more likely by slowly breaking down your humanity. And so if money is radioactive, how do we use it wisely? How do we obtain its benefit but avoid its danger? Handling radioactive material requires a lot of training. Um, now, using money wisely is different than using money smartly. Uh, some of us are very smart with our money, but are we wise? Walter Brueggemann writes, for security and success in the economy, one must be smart. Being money smart, however, is not the same as being wise about money and possessions. The difference between being smart and being wise is that for those with smartness, money is a thing unto itself. 
For the wise, money is deeply contextualized. Money is not a thing unto itself, but is always deeply contextualized. What does that mean? It means that money is always embedded in a social fabric, which includes God, our neighbor, and the earth. None of our decisions are merely financial decisions. For the wise, money must always be subordinate to love for God and love for others. That's been the driving ethic of the Old Testament, and it continues in Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is written to those wanting wisdom more than smarts, and that's reflected in its nuance. In Proverbs, money is not always good. Wealth is not always blessing. More is not always better. In fact, there is a whole host of better than sayings in Proverbs contrasting wisdom and righteousness with money. So Proverbs 8, 10, and 11, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 16, 19, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 28.6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Given the choice, according to Proverbs, and you always have a choice, poverty with wisdom is better than wealth without it. Why is that? And that's because wisdom lasts. Proverbs 23, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And so Proverbs invites us to ask, when is the last time I desisted? I showed restraint in my pursuit of wealth. When is the last time that I chose wisdom over money? Uh, That's a choice that we are going to have to make some point in this life, sometime in this year, sometime this month, where we choose wisdom over money. Of course, that's a hard choice to make in a world that worships money. And so how can we steal ourselves so that we choose wisdom over wealth? Let's read the opening verses of Proverbs with money in mind. Uh, This is why Proverbs was written, Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction regarding money. To understand words of insight regarding wealth. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 7 stands as the theological and epistemological foundation for the book of Proverbs, the spiritual grammar of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. Notice the likeness between God and mammon. Maybe the only thing more radioactive than money is God. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire, a jealous lover, pure holiness, all-powerful, all-knowing, able to both give life and take it, perfectly just, 
a mark of wisdom is being a little scared of him. The beginning of wisdom. When describing the fear of the Lord, I like to think about horses personally because they make me very uncomfortable. Uh, when you stand next to a horse, you can hardly believe how strong it is. Uh, it is so big and so huge and so muscly and its eyeballs are monstrous. And so it's wise to be a little bit afraid of horses. We should feel the same way about God. C.S. Lewis captured the fear of the Lord memorably in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Beaver is describing Aslan, the great lion, and the children ask, is he safe? And Beaver answers, of course he's not safe, but he's good. God is good, but he's not safe. And so faith is believing in both God's goodness and his holiness. Uh, Bruce Waltke writes, Christians believe his promises and love him, but we also believe his threats and fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where we must start in our pursuit of money wisdom, with an acknowledgement that whatever God says, whatever God does, whoever he is, whoever he has made us to be, that trumps all the money advice in the world. So what does God say? For the most part, the wisdom literature is committed to the idea that deeds produce consequences. That's a theme throughout Proverbs. Deeds produce consequences, and not just natural consequences, but divine consequences. God, through his management of the world, rewards faithfulness and punishes wickedness. Regarding money, this most clearly presents itself in Proverbs uh, when it commends diligence. Last time we spoke of the importance of Sabbath rest, uh, Proverbs reminds us that work is important too. Uh, God created us to rest one day out of seven, and he created us to work for six. We are to be fruitful and multiply, which takes work. So the fear of the Lord, our creator and sustainer and redeemer, should lead to a life of joyful diligence, working six days and resting seven. Uh, Proverbs commends diligence and confidently expects that diligence will lead to good material outcomes, and it expects laziness to result in poverty. So Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.1, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 14.23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk only to poverty, tends only to poverty. And then Proverbs 20.13, love not sleep. I hate this one. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. Now, this kind of teaching has often been used to blame the poor for their own poverty. And that kind of logic is a sign we're turning the Proverbs into money smarts instead of money wisdom. Um, work and wealth and diligence has to be about more than cash. Uh, diligence is about love for God and neighbor. It's about leveraging God's gifts for the good of the community. And so regarding the poor, it's good for the community when everyone in the community contributes. Uh, when someone cannot work, it's always a tragedy because God created us to work. That's why the Old Testament law instructed the wealthy to feed the poor, not by delivering already harvested food, but by inviting them to join in the harvesting. So the widow Ruth was surely grateful to Boaz for his kindness, but it was her, not him, who gleaned the edges of the field. She's the one that um, harvested the wheat. 
And so if at all possible, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the disabled are to be given opportunities to work because work signals one's full participation in the community. Uh, Paul reiterates this in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would not we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Is this cruel? Not at all, because to not work is to not be a neighbor. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so the tragedy of the thief is not only that he's taking what is not his, but that he has nothing of his own to give, and we were created to give. So in order to be wise, we need a thicker definition of diligence. Uh, Without wisdom, diligence becomes overwork. It builds a house, but not a home. It puts food on the table, but not fellowship around it. It buys gifts, but not love. Diligence is giving one's full self to God and community. It is stewarding God's gifts, however great, however small, because we love and fear God the giver. We are commanded to be diligent in our occupation, but also in our devotion, in our relationships, in our communities. And so how much monetary wealth we obtain in our pursuit of diligence is entirely up to God. Uh, We are rewarded according to our labor, not according to the increase, um, according to 1 Corinthians. And so that's why we have to be mindful not to judge the poor and assume a lack of diligence. Um, We are called to be faithful with our entire life, and then we just allow God to distribute and disperse um, wealth. And so there are actually uh, some... uh, people who are materially poor, who are very diligent and very faithful. And then there are some people who are materially wealthy, who are um, unfaithful in their lack of diligence. So if you want to be wise, uh, fear the Lord and ask yourself, am I diligent? Where am I prone to laziness? Is my overwork in one sphere of life avoidance of another area? Do I have a properly thick definition of diligence and laziness? Am I bringing my full self to God and community? And am I living in such a way that invites others to bring their full selves to God and community? Is that the way that I am sharing and encouraging others? And that leads us to the second principle in Proverbs around money. So first, the fear of the Lord should result in diligence. Second, the fear of the Lord should result in righteousness. Righteousness includes, of course, financial ethics, and Proverbs talks a great deal about that. Proverbs 12, verse 5 and 6, the thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. And so not just the actions, but the thoughts of the righteous are just, but the wicked cannot be trusted. Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 20.23, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. By unequal weights, uh, the Bible is talking about using different measures for different people. So you can charge some more and and others less. And so it's a way... Uh, Today, we would talk about someone who manipulates the system for their own gain or for the gain of those like us, uh, showing preference, maybe rewarding friends and the well-to-do while cheating the poor and stranger. This is not only unfair, 
it's not only an abomination, right? It divides a community against itself, which infuriates God. Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Notice back in 12, 6, how the mouth of the upright delivers the victim, right? That, this means that righteousness for the wealthy is not simply about keeping your own house in order. The righteous in Proverbs restore order. They live rightly themselves, they judge rightly, and they govern rightly. Righteousness also includes generosity. In God's kingdom, a kingdom of neighbors, you cannot be ethical without being generous. So Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 29.7, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. And notice in that last proverb how, again, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. He knows. He's familiar. He's acquainted. He doesn't turn a blind eye to need. And he knows, not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of justice, the poor neighbor has rights. He deserves help. He deserves opportunity. He deserves property, in Israel at least. And there's a good chance he deserves some of my property. Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Uh, Donald Goen writes, the Old Testament assumes throughout that there will always be some with relatively more possessions. This is no scandal for wealth is to be prized as one of the good gifts of God. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. What is a scandal, as many texts have shown us, is when those who do not have so much are deprived of what is rightfully theirs by those whose consciences do not bother them. All members of the community are entitled to a viable life of security, dignity, and flourishing. The mismanagement of our money towards exploitation of the poor is foolish and dangerous, and it invites the anger of God. And we see this again and again in the prophets leading to the exile, that it was mismanagement of the land, of the wealth that God had given to Israel, the oppression of the poor that infuriated God and led to their exile. As we wrap up this morning, um, if you want to see righteous wealth in action, a really good place to look is actually the book of Job. Job begins, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job feared God which means that he was faithful with his wealth. And you 
see that in the description as he defends himself against his accusers. He describes his wealth. Um, he describes his faithfulness with that wealth. Um, if you look particularly in chapter 29, how he cares for the widow, how he cares for the stranger, um, how he cares for the poor. Job is the model human being, blessed by God, using his blessing for others. He is really a walking proverb. But of course, the big story in the book of Job is um, how Job did not uh, experience blessing um, all throughout his life, right? And so he experienced suffering despite his faithfulness, despite the fact that he was diligent and righteous, though he was uh, faithful, though he feared God and turned away from evil. He was as good as any man in the Old Testament. God did not bless him. Quite the opposite. God gave Satan permission to take everything from him, his wealth, his children, his health, his well-being. He was faithful his whole life, and he now has nothing to show for it. God, the giver, became a taker. That all happens in the first few chapters of Job. And then the Bible gives us this long, long poem trying to figure it out. It doesn't make sense, especially having just gone over the book of Proverbs and how we expect that diligence will lead to material wealth. Righteousness will lead to blessing. Uh, that's what Job's three friends assumed. He must have sinned. Uh, he must have failed at being righteous, failed at being diligent, cheated um, the poor. That's the only explanation. Job did something really bad, and that's why bad things happened to him. Bad things like poverty happen to bad people. That's how the universe works. Job actually agrees with the logic, but not the conclusion, because he knows that he hasn't sinned. And so he is defending himself throughout the entire book um, and really asking the Lord to give him an answer, that there's no reason he should be experiencing the suffering that he's experiencing. And chapter 31 is his final self-defense. And in that chapter, he does say a lot about his use of money. So Job 31, uh, beginning verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my merciful alone, and so not shared it, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its socket. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, because my hand had found much, then this would also be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So Job is saying, man, if I have done any of that with my money, I would have been false to God and deserved grief. But I have not done that. I have not been false. And so why am I suffering? Job 31, 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job was righteous with his wealth. 
He was diligent, ethical, generous. He was a good man and leveraged his blessing for the worship of God and the blessing of neighbors. It would seem, though, that Job began to think that his righteousness entitled him to his blessing. And so that's where we have a break from the true story of money, where money is a gift. It's always a gift. And it seems like here, if that we're tempted in the reading of Proverbs, and Job is tempted um, in his own understanding of wisdom, that he begins to wonder if there's any benefit to righteousness, if God can just take it away. His money was no longer a gift, but wages that he deserved. And that is so much of what the world thinks when it comes to money. And if we're not careful, we'll read the book of Proverbs and confirm that story. <clears throat> we'll look at wealth and see it not only as gift, but as something earned, a sign of merit, worth, even righteousness, until we experience poverty, the poverty of others and our own, and see it as markers of unfaithfulness, of failure. And that's just not how God distributes wealth in this world. Every good thing is a gift from above. It is all gift, all grace, all the way down. And that keeps us forever in God's debt so that we should love him with our wealth. And this brings us back to the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. God is powerful. God is good. God is holy in all that he does. And the fear of the Lord should lead us to diligence, to righteousness, to justice, to generosity, not to stay on God's good side, not as a way to manipulate him into blessing us, but simply because of who God is and who he has created us to be. And then he is free to respond however he wants, because he's God. He gives the increase, and we trust his decision. Job is ultimately silenced by God. He never really gets an answer to his problem of evil. God is unwilling to argue with him. But God amazingly still calls Job righteous, and he restores his fortune at the end of the book. That's what Kat read earlier, Job 42. 10 to 11, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Notice how God restored Job's, Job's fortune. The, through the generosity of others, through people sympathizing with his weakness. What a different experience for Job that must have been than the kindness he received before his grief, when people sung his praises because he was rich, because he was righteous, because he earned it. And now people loved him, not because he earned it, but because he had been brought low. Job's wealth now is beyond merit. The old logic no longer pertains. It's all gift, all the way down. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Verse 12, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah the name of the third, Karen Huppock. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, 
Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Job, who is an unreasonably perfect character for the Old Testament, just too good to be true, he is a foretaste of Jesus Christ. Christopher Ashe writes, There is something something deeply extreme about Job. He is not every man. He is not even every believer. He foreshadows one man whose greatness exceeded even Job's, whose sufferings took him deeper than Job, and whose perfect obedience to his father was only anticipated in faint outline by Job. The universe needed one man who would lovingly and perfectly obey his heavenly father in the entirety of his life and death, by whose obedience the many would be made righteous, by whose poverty the many would be made rich. Any bristling we have at God's unfairness toward Job must reckon with God's more severe unfairness toward Christ, which opened up the door for him to be mercifully unfair toward us. Let's close with Philippians 2, 8-12. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.